Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 38. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, exploits, and vulnerabilities. Thanks for being here to talk through the latest information coming out of the Intel channel on the Lima Charlie community Slack. It's great to have you, Matt. Chris, what's going on, sir? Great to be here. Huge thanks again to our awesome, awesome Lima Charlie community and all the great things that they've been doing reporting in the Intel channel. I'm looking forward to today's session. We've got a lot of really cool stuff going on. The first one we have is from Fortigard Labs. In early February, they encountered a kernel driver that makes use of the open source donut tool. The donut project being a position independent shellcode that loads .NET assemblies, PE files, and other Windows payloads from memory and runs them with parameters. The sample that triggered their detection was a driver called wintapx.sys, which they aptly named wintapx. Uh, Once they started analyzing it, they could see that it was compiled in May of 2020 and subsequently were able to identify variants of it compiled back as far as December 2021, with speculation that it's been active in the wild since mid-2020. Observed telemetry shows that 65% of the lookups for the driver were from Saudi Arabia, indicating it was a primary target. This same telemetry shows a considerable increase in the number of lookups for this driver in August and September 2022, and again in February and March 2023. This may indicate that the actors behind this driver were operating major campaigns on those dates. They go on to state that they don't have enough information to conclude who is behind the malware, but based on the victimology, they suspect an Iranian threat actor. What do we do with this information? Is it important to defenders out there to hear about the tactics employed by an APT they are unlikely to encounter? Do these techniques get disseminated into the wider world when techniques like this are then disclosed? Well, you know, Chris, I think this is an interesting one, uh, primarily, and no shade being thrown to Fortinet whatsoever. However, there are lots of moments in this blog post, this great technical analysis, by the way, of this WinTapix driver that they've discovered. But there are plenty of moments where they say, you know, we still don't have enough information to know how it's been distributed and who is behind these operations. They admittedly do push their attribution towards victimology. And say, based on what we've typically seen done in this region, here's what we think. Uh, For that reason, first off, I'd like to think that listeners of this podcast are in that part of the world. So if you are in that part of the world, you definitely will want to hear about this. Absolutely. But I would say, you know, sometimes blog posts like this, they're they're a little bit of a call out, um, a little bit of a, hey, we've seen a new thing. And it's more important for us to talk about the malware and its capabilities than it is for us to wait and have attribution, if you will. Sometimes the details that they're pulling in can also be based off a very narrow magnifying glass. And what that means is, you know, they may have insight or detection capabilities or or other things that are limited to a certain region, and it just hasn't been seen in in another place. Remember, Fortinet, you know, for example, they're going to be limited to where they have deployment and visibility at. So it doesn't mean this piece of malware is not elsewhere in the world, but I do get what they're saying about region-specific malware and targeting and thing, and and I'm going to say there's probably a heavy statistic that that leans in their direction. That being said, I do think the most interesting call-out in this blog post, as you mentioned, is the Donut Project, the uh, open-source position-independent code that enables in-memory execution of various types of executable code. And the thing that I love, a module created by Donut can either be staged from an HTTP server or embedded directly in the loader itself, reading that straight off the GitHub website. 
And I think that's the big takeaway here is if you're a malware author who's not familiar with the Donut Project or, you know, maybe you've kind of been relying on some of the tried and true methods, but they're starting to get detected a little bit more, a blog post like this might call your attention towards it. But I think it goes both ways. I think the use of this type of tool means that defenders are also aware of it more now, which might also have been the driver for this kind of blog post is, hey, we don't know where this thing's coming from. We don't know, you know, exactly what the source is. However, we are encountering things that we think the community should be aware of. And Donut is certainly one that I think everyone should be aware of. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this blog post was a huge, really good source of information of, hey, there's a thing coming down the wire. Watch out. Malware authors are starting to use this thing if, if they haven't been already. And here's a breakdown of how it works. And again, Huge props to the team over there for a really great technical analysis on, on how this malware works. But right now, at this point, I don't think we're seeing maybe a new APT being discovered or anything. I think we're seeing a new piece of malware get called out, which is always a, a valuable thing to have. Is there legitimate reasons for open source projects like Donut to be out there? It seems, you know, it's masquerading as, you know, a research project, but really has uh, malicious intent. So, Chris, you are stepping upon the famous offensive security tool debate, which asks that exact question. There are years and years of Twitter threads that are worth digging into this. Huge props to anyone who's been involved in this type of thread before. Uh, I'm a little bit split. The Some of the industry's consensus is that by these tools being open sourced, it makes the detection capabilities available to everyone. And I would say eh, not really because it is the offensive side of it that's being open source and being made readily available. And then you get folks like, uh, you know, the Sigma project and stuff that come along and they're the ones who write maybe some of the open source detections. But again, it goes down the route of adversaries are able to just pick and choose the tool sets that they want. I will say a lot of times when things like this come along, I'm not going to say that they're necessarily academic in sense. But I think a lot of times projects like these start out as someone who wants to try and do a thing and they end up being able to do that thing and then they, they make that thing public. I'd like to think this and maybe I'm a bit of an optimist, but I'd like to think that every single GitHub repository that contains potentially offensive code is not written with the intents of making bad guys lives easier, right? I think it's someone was like, hey, I based on my understanding of processor architectures or code loads or, or API calls or whatever it might be based on the way I see this thing, I think a thing is possible. And look, I did it, you know, and, and, and here's what we do. And who's to say that someone didn't release this project and use that to get them a job at some sort of detection engineering facility or something to say, hey, look how well I know the kernel or look how well I know how to run shell code and things like that. You know what I mean? So it's hard to know always the motivation behind them. I am firmly in the camp, though, that the more stuff is open source, the more knowledge we have about it, which is a little bit better. Yes, it makes it wider use and it makes it easier for threat actors to use, but I'm a bigger fan of I'd rather know about the code and I'd rather read blog posts like this that point me to the code and say, hey, here's this thing that's being used and abused so I can posture for the future than I would... And Chris, here's the alternative in my mind. Every malware blog post we read is closed source, secret sauce, not going to tell you the full details of how it works, but here's 90% of the analysis, the other 10% you got to pay for and stuff like that. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of that approach. So 
as much as I don't like offensive capabilities being so easily available, at the same time, I'm a fan of defenders being able to read up on them and, and get involved in them as well. And I will say, after reading this article, I went and I read Donut's kind of help guide, if you will, or the readme doc, top to bottom, just to get an idea of what this thing was. And I'm already starting to generate ideas of what are some ways that we could potentially think about detecting for this thing. And if my Intel channel is listening, which hopefully they are, uh, they might even start thinking about some of those things as well. But uh, nonetheless, it's an interesting stance. And this might be another episode we bring some guests on to talk about the offensive security tool debate. Yeah, and I think there's still probably a pretty high barrier of entry looking at it. It's pretty technical, so it's not like a download script kitty kit. Yeah, uh, that's that's the kicker, right? Is always what is is well, should we have even open sourced this thing? And it's like, well, what will the next person do with it? You know, and it just come, really comes down to, uh, you know, how easy is it to abuse, and then how easy is it to weaponize, and then how frequent do we see that happening as well? Some info from Checkpoint researchers. Iranian threat actor Agrius continues to operate against Israeli targets, but is now using a previously unseen ransomware written in C++ called Moneybird. These attacks are destructive influence operations being disguised as ransomware attacks. First introduced in 2021, Agrius is an Iran-aligned threat actor that operates mostly in the Middle East. The actor has been tied to several ransomware and wiper attacks with a major focus on Israeli institutions. The group's affiliation within Iran is not clear, although recent reports have tied it to the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence and Security. What does it mean when we see an APT change their tooling like this? So interestingly enough, I, I reading through this blog post, I think most of their TTPs were actually largely unchanged. Uh, however, there is this random kind of previously unseen malware, as you mentioned, written in C++ called Moneybird. But everything else is is agrius through and through. Uh, Checkpoint calls it out. They even have a really cool diagram. They talk about how the threat actor uses things like soft perfect network scanner, plink, proc dump, filezilla, so on and so forth. And the only real big kicker here is the PDB string that was in the executable itself, calling it Moneybird. And then Moneybird is present in the ransom note that gets deployed as well. You know, Chris, you and I we've we've talked about kind of like the human side of some of these threat groups before, and I I don't know if this is true or not, but I could almost see this being like someone stayed up late one night, wrote something cool and was like, I'm going to call this money bird. And it was like, hey, man, that's that's not really how we how we fly, you know, pun intended. And they were like, ah, screw it. We'll just call it something else, you know, and and like, well, what are you going to use for all the other stages of the attack? And it's like, oh, I already know how to use all these tools, so I'll just keep them in there. So money bird is going to be the only difference. And, you know, it's again, might point back to. Some of the intricacies, the personalities inside of a threat group or something like that. It may also be to avoid a very specific type of threat. And as weird as this may sound, and some of us might never know the meaning of this, money bird might mean something to someone somewhere, either from the operator side or the victim side. And it is a specific call out that five people in the world know about. Nonetheless, a lot of TTPs in there to be aware of. I will say this group isn't really breaking down barriers of any crazy new technology or anything like that. I do think what Checkpoint meant when they said previously unseen, I don't think they were referring to anything new. I think it was just it hadn't really been documented or written up before, but everything else about this group has. So if this is, you know, again, if you're in that Israeli cyberspace and 
you think that this threat actor might be coming after you. Great blog post. I definitely read through it. Just be aware of what this Agris group is doing. Have detections in place as well. But I don't think we're seeing too much crazy stuff from this group other than just money bird embedded all over this executable. In a destructive influence operation disguised as a ransomware attack. So they're they're actually trying to disrupt a company's operations, but instead of making it look like an offensive action from Iranian threat actors, they're making it look like some financially motivated threat actors. That's sort of the TLDR on that. Yeah, that I mean, I think that's kind of a um, I'm going to say that that's a given for groups like this. Masking destructive influence ops as ransomware attacks. It's just another way to send defenders and oh, you know, over here while you're doing a bunch of stuff over there. And I think ransomware has taken the throne for many years now as the thing that people worry about the most. So if they hear ransomware, they immediately gravitate towards don't encrypt, don't encrypt, don't encrypt, right? Let's kill this thing as much as we can. And if I can divert the security team's attention for a day or two or a week or whatever it is, then I can potentially do some other stuff inside of the environment as well. And that may be the reason for the money bird thing is name your malware to something no one's seen before. There's zero Google search hits when you look it up. And all of a sudden, we've got to launch brand new kind of reverse engineering. We've got to get into this. What is this thing? Oh, my gosh, what is it capable of? New malware, so on and so forth. And all the while, I'm in the background doing a bunch of stuff that hopefully you won't detect later on in life. It tends to get a little tricky, in my opinion, when you use ransomware as kind of a red herring because it's a lot of noise. And a lot of organizations these days, at least ones that I've talked to or worked with, when ransomware is seen, they tend to gravitate more towards a, you know, restart, redo everything, clean slate approach. Uh, Some organizations will do an ad hoc, maybe wiping, patching and things like that. But, you know, there tends to be, for example, in ransomware incidents, like a complete password overhaul is done or a complete password reset. My point being I could see this group wanting to drop in some additional persistence mechanisms and things like that in order to evade some of those ransomware containment and remediation steps that we see. So I think it all comes down to the group knowing who they're targeting and hopefully looking to survive any sort of remediation event that that might take place. We got an awful lot of APTs in today's discussion. Next up from the folks at Sentinel One, they observed an ongoing campaign by Kim Suki a North Korean APT group targeting North Korea-focused information services, human rights activists, and DPRK defector support organizations. The campaign focuses on file reconnaissance and information exfiltration using a variant of the random query malware which enables subsequent precision attacks. Kim Suki distributes random query using Microsoft-compiled HTML help files, or CHM files, which is apparently their long-running tactic for delivering malware. Kimsuki strategically employs new TLDs and domain names for malicious infrastructure, mimicking standard .com TLDs to deceive unsuspecting targets and network defenders. If I gather things correctly, this group is casting a wide net to gather information, which it then later uses in precision attacks once a target has been identified. Is being very selective like this a tactic in staying undetected? I think this is definitely a valuable tactic in staying undetected, especially in the long run. If I am an APT group like this, and as you mentioned, they've gone after things like North Korean-focused information services, human rights activists, defector-supported organizations, they are conducting espionage against these to figure out what's going on, discover or uncover dissenters, upcoming operations, things against the People's Republic and whatnot that they might be curious about. These are long-term espionage campaigns. 
these types of reconnaissance and information gathering things that happen are very important in making sure that they're going after the right targets. So you talked about this being potentially selective and saying undetected. And when I say long run, I mean, I may spend months, years discovering who the right targets are and then implanting just the right targets so I get just the level of access that I need. I don't want to go after and target everyone inside of an organization necessarily, because if one person finds out, then guess what? Everyone's going to find out. You know, if one person gets pwned or it's known that they have malware, then everyone's going to wipe their systems and I've lost all those years of efforts. Where if I can slowly instead exfiltrate system details, files on the system, usernames, things like that, like basic system information, I can craft my campaign to be much more surgical, much more tactical. And I think that's what you'll see a lot of these APT groups doing. They'll also spin up and prop up infrastructure that is more closely aligned with what that user might expect to see. So Chris, for example, and I, I use this as a, as a somewhat of a weak example, but it also fits the bill very well. Let's just say I wanted to target you with a password manager watering hole or something. Well, if I did my reconnaissance and I found out that you used LastPass, for example, heaven help you, you use LastPass, and then I crafted a campaign around one password, it wouldn't interest you at all. But if I went the other route and said, oh, I know exactly what he uses, and then I realized what type of system you used when you were online, where you saved your documents, if I found out you also used Google Drive in addition to LastPass and you liked a certain type of, I don't know, accounting software or something, the more of a profile I can build of you, the more crafted I can make those attacks and the more chance I'll have that you'll click on the thing that I want you to click on. So I view reconnaissance things like this is in the long run. Yeah. Being selective and choosing your targets carefully and making sure you're getting the right target. The other thing I'll mention about this, when you're targeting groups like this, defector groups, human rights activists, you're not necessarily talking about a group that is at their laptops 24-7. And this is an interesting takeaway for some folks here. But when you work with or when you are going after individuals who spend a lot of time in the field, they might spend more time on their mobile. They might open their laptop once a week, once a month. This is not your average office worker whose desktop and workstation are on 24-7. Uh, You can drop an implant on there. They're on nine to five or very predictable hours with vacation times and stuff like that. These are folks who may be flying all around the world, all around a region. They've got very different patterns of activity. So performing that reconnaissance helps you craft a better campaign. Do you know much about random query? This is the first time I've heard about this. The way they speak about it, it seems like a very well-known piece of malware. Yeah, so this is, uh, and I also call them Kimsuki. I apologize if that is a, a mispronunciation on our part. Random query is a staple piece of malware for them. It does mention, the blog post says this, but we've seen it over the over the past few months and years as well, that it comes in multiple different flavors. Uh, it is, interestingly enough, there are variations that can do all sorts of crazy things that malware authors or adversaries might need, such as, uh, you know, key logging, exfiltrating information, executing additional files and things like that. This particular instance, in the case that you're talking about here, I believe it was a VBScript version of random query or a VBScript flavor, as they're calling it. This is one that was used just to exfiltrate valuable information, uh, hardware operating system, file details, things like that. 
Again, it depends on what the adversary is needing it to do. I view the random query as kind of like a choose your own toolbox. Every time you need it, you say, okay, I'm in a reconnaissance op. What types of things do I need to collect as part of this operation? And I'm only going to use those tools that I need. Keeps the malware light, keeps it clean. It also makes it a lot easier to, to run without detection. Let's say, for example, random query had 20 pieces to it, Chris, and only 15 had ever been publicly announced. Those other five are either really, really secret sauce detections or they're going to be undetected, which is a better place to be. So having different pieces like this and only using what you need definitely allows for a little bit more crafty of a malware approach. So basically a tiny little implant that beacons back the desired information back to control server. And if that's all I need, I don't need malware that does anything else. I'll go the other route and I'll say some threat actors have been caught by packing too much in. You know, I think we've talked about some malware on this podcast before that have all different crazy sorts of capabilities. Let's say it's got a bullet list of 20 things it can do, but my adversary only uses two of them, but it's just the tool that they know. So that's what they ship. Well, the problem is you may have 20 capabilities. You only may use two, but that full 20 might have detections written for it. Maybe it's code on disk, DLL files, things that show up in memory things that get loaded that never get used, whatever it might be. So the more lightweight you can make your malware, the easier it's going to be to hide inside of uh, systems that have like, you know, endpoint detection mechanisms, AV and so on and so forth. I know this one made a bit of a buzz through the wider world. Uh, Microsoft has uncovered stealthy and targeted malicious activity focused on post-compromise credential access and network system discovery aimed at critical infrastructure organizations in the United States. The attack is carried out by Volt Typhoon, a state-sponsored actor based in China that typically focuses on espionage and information gathering. Microsoft assesses with moderate confidence that this Volt Typhoon campaign is pursuing development of capabilities that could disrupt critical communications infrastructure between the United States and Asia region during future crises. I think we were just talking about another type of attack on edge devices recently with the same MO, gain persistence on the device and lay the groundwork for future destructive attacks and try to remain undetected. This stuff makes me a little anxious in that it makes me wonder how much of our infrastructure, the stuff we rely on every day, is vulnerable or has been compromised. And what kind of event would it take for a threat actor to deploy an attack like this? Yeah, I got to be honest, um, OT space, not being my wheelhouse, but something that I've always paid attention to in the way that you just described, right? My light's going to be turned off one day. Um, I think there's an interesting element of posturing here. Uh, I think it's one thing to say, you know, I have the ability to, and it's another thing to actually do it. I, I do not know the full scope of maybe what a, you know, a, an international power is trying to do with implants all over someone's electrical grid. Or I do think there is, as mentioned, kind of in the blog post, achieving and maintaining access to target networks. And that might just be as far as it goes for the foreseeable future, right? That might just be as far as it goes where it simply is, hey, they have access to this thing. And then the next time you're in, you know, trade negotiations or something like that, you just happen to let it slip like, oh, hey, that electrical outage in, you know, uh, Idaho last month. That was us, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's as far as it goes, but maybe it's just one of those things where you can just simply say, yeah, we're in there, right? We have insight. I also don't think this is very uh, unique. I think any country that has critical infrastructure has likely had some threat actor poking around in it in some way, shape or form. 
While it's not my wheelhouse, I know historically these networks are aged. There's not always the greatest security wrapped around them. Sometimes things are internet facing that shouldn't be. I'm pulling from a lot of Shodan search experience here where, you know, you can uncover like water dams and water treatment facilities facing the internet with VNC open and stuff like that. I think that's probably a systemic problem that's inside of that industry. However, what threat actors are doing with all this, I personally don't think we're going to see an, you know, I don't think we're going to see the lights turned off anytime soon, or I don't think we're going to see a threat actor necessarily pull this switch. I will say this is another area where cyber attacks can start to border on kinetic and do start to get into that other scary realm because it might actually start impacting people. Not that cyber attacks don't, but, you know, cyber attacks aren't causing crazy infrastructure damage on a mass global scale as much as like ransomware is, for example. However, uh, again, I don't know if I see this something that necessarily we need to be weary of. My other reason for saying that, Chris, is I don't see it as something that is happening in the past two months. I think it's something that's been around for a long time. A huge hat tip to the folks who work in OT security and are working on ICS security and are working in trying to secure these networks and helping organizations secure these networks. I do think it's an issue. Let me be clear. I think the security of these networks is an issue and anything we can do to address that is very valuable to have. I just, I can't predict what type of action it will take for someone to finally say, forget it and just, you know, take it all down, right? Uh, I will say in the blog post, they talked about how in this campaign, the affected organizations span communications, manufacturing, utility, transportation, construction, maritime, government, information technology, and education sectors. And if I had to be very straightforward, that sounds to me more like there's a profile of hardware or a profile of some sort of edge devices or network devices that have been the the uh, you know that have been exploited in this case and sure enough they do talk about how it's usually been routers firewalls vpn hardware and things like that that have been targeted but you know again do i see someone necessarily saying hey i've got my finger on the button of all your electrical plants and i'll turn them off if i need to i don't know if we'll see that soon maybe it's already been a talking tactic and we all don't know about it who knows I think what scares me more is all of these different sectors, they are critical infrastructure. We know that ransomware threat actors do not see it above themselves to leave these things alone. I'm picking particularly on the education sectors and the maritime sectors. These are very, very critical to global operations, maritime being shipping and education being where people send their kids for school. And we've seen ransomware actors show no restraint. In going after some of these networks. So my big takeaway here, I understand the state nexus capabilities, and that is definitely something that I want us to be aware of, and I'm glad that we're securing. But the exposed vulnerabilities is perhaps the more concerning part. And that's because there are threat actors out there who look at that and say, oh, vulnerable VPN, ransom, 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 ransom. And next thing you know, we've got schools that can't open, uh, I myself, I'm based in Texas. The uh, Dallas Police Department has, or I think it's either the city of Dallas or Dallas Police Department, can't remember which one, maybe both, have recently fallen under attacks and they, they can't operate. People aren't getting paid and stuff. And this is, you know, it's not necessarily kinetic in the sense that lights are turning off and power plants are blowing up, but humans can't live their lives. And that's the type of stuff I want to make sure doesn't doesn't happen. 
Yeah, and I spoke to somebody who I think is quite knowledgeable in this field about the nation-state aspect to it, and they told me that there's a sort of a mutually assured destruction-type posture in place from all sides involved that prevent these kind of things from actually taking place, so... Yeah, and who's to say that back in the day, you know, X number of years ago, we weren't silently sending number of nukes created around the world either, right? Because that was the deterrent. Who knows? Uh, the next one comes to us from the team over at Zscaler Threat Labs. They are reporting on Picabot, a new malware trojan that emerged in early 2023 that consists of two components, a loader and a core module. Once deployed, the malware includes the ability to execute arbitrary commands and inject payloads that are provided by Command and Control, or C2, server. This one caught my attention because of the extensive anti-analysis features it demonstrates to thwart automated analysis and sandbox and research environments. The code checks for the presence of debuggers, breakpoints, and system information, including memory and the number of processors. PikaBot also uses the ADV Obfuscator library to encrypt important strings used by the malware. We've covered anti-analysis a number of times on the show in the last few months. Is this a new norm for financially motivated malware? And do we generally see similar devices being employed by APTs? Or is this the kind of detection less of a concern given the tactics they employ? Yeah, I, you know, I think we've talked about anti-detection, anti-forensic, anti-analysis techniques on this podcast. I know we talked about it very recently as well. I think this is just going to become the norm. Uh, you mentioned earlier in today's episode about, hey, if, you know, publicly available libraries and publicly available projects and things, are they good or bad for the industry? And, and ADV Obfuscator is yet another public library. Uh, it's another thing that is available on GitHub for anyone to go get into. And yes, it, you know, is exactly that. It's an obfuscator. Admittedly, it hasn't been updated in three years, but it's still out there and it's publicly available to use. I, I think this is going to start to become the norm if it's not already. Given adversary motivations, not really as being a delimiter anymore. You know, these types of anti-detection techniques maybe were once reserved for APT groups and things, but since they've become wildly available and accessible, I think you're likely to see it in more present in more malware families, regardless of their motivation. So financial motivation, whatever it might be. Remember, we've mentioned this before too, my goal is to get the malware to run, or an adversary's goal, if you will, is to get the malware to run. I Whatever I can use to get it to run, to get it to bypass detection, to get it to evade user suspicion is what I'm going to do, what I'm going to use. I, I do think one of the other things that's important about this, uh, they do call it out, Zscaler in their blog post about PikaBot sharing similarities with the QuackBot or CACBot or however you pronounce it, Trojan, including distribution methods, campaigns, and malware behaviors. I think that goes back to your other point, Chris, about potentially some TTPs changing. If you imagine the different stages of delivering malware, some of them work, some of them don't. The ones that don't, I'm going to look for new code or look for new executables to prop them up. I will note that Zscaler also called out that PikaBot has been used to distribute Cobalt Strike, for example, which shows it's kind of that initial stage malware. The goal is to eventually move to something a little more sustainable, a little more long term. So in this case, I, I think, you know, you're just seeing some techniques that work, some that didn't, and they package them in and have created this new thing. I would also take a shot in the dark and guess that based on the regions that they're going after, you've got someone who's trying to put together malware that will survive at a global scale. I'm not sure if you saw, but there is a system language exclusion. If the malware discovers that the system language is Georgian, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Slovenian, it won't run in this case. This is another one where they are jurisdictionally aware, 
They know what's going to happen if they get caught in these regions. It does a little bit to point back to who may have authored the malware. But you and I have talked about the economies of this before. This might also be a test run to say, hey, I've got this piece of malware. It's got, you know, 50 different anti-detection techniques baked in. Here's what you can do. Here's how you can use it, so on and so forth. And it might just be one of those. But in this case, I think we're probably just seeing some of the same capabilities of uh, Hackbot thrown in. And then same campaign, same distribution methods, hopefully to get a second piece of malware in there. Okay, so well, the last one bleeds into this one because QBot, also known as QuackBot, is back in the Intel stream. Bleeping Computer reporting that QBot malware operation has started to abuse a DLL hijacking flaw in the Windows 10 Word program, write.exe, to infect computers and thus using this legitimate program to evade detection by security software. QBot is a Windows malware that initially started as a banking trojan but evolved into a malware dropper. Ransomware gangs including Blackbasta, Egregor, and Prolock have partnered with the malware operation to gain initial access to corporate networks to conduct extortion attacks. What can we expect when we see a malware vendor start using a new technique like this? And can we expect a surge in activity as they try and exploit the novelty of a new attack vector? So interestingly, this is uh, very much in line with some of the things that we've talked about before. Adversaries discover how to do a thing, discover a vulnerability, and maybe try to exploit it as much as they possibly can. In this case, it was a DLL hijacking flaw in Windows 10 WordPad. So think about all the different details inside of that sentence. Windows 10 WordPad. WordPad is included with Windows. Where Windows 10 is a very, very prolific operating system right now, very widespread. And so there's your target pool or potential target pool, if you will. And I think, you know, if you're a malware author and you uncover a new or novel way to run your malware, yep, you're absolutely going to run or include that feature in there because you, you want to get it working, right? You want to get your malware installed and then you want to subsequently either sell access or use it to conduct your own campaigns and things like that. Really, really cool kind of breakdown of the way that this works. Uh, I think it was a really interesting kind of article as to how they talked very well about what exactly DLL hijacking is and how it works. Essentially, you're taking advantage of the DLL search order inside of Windows and a really great blog post to kind of walk through that. But it does point out that there are some of the same techniques that we've seen used in other campaigns. In this case, it's perhaps just a new way to load the same old malware. For that reason, I think you called it right on the head there, Chris. Uh, someone had a way to do a thing, then they found a new way. So now they're trying their new shiny toy out. Who's to say that this technique has not been used by other threat groups before, and maybe they're just kind of hijacking it, pun intended. But I, I think it's just going to be a resurgence of, here's a thing, maybe we can get it working instead of our other 30 ways of execution that maybe were not as successful. I don't know for sure, but if I was to track the success rate of this malware executing, I would imagine right before this implementation, we perhaps maybe saw a drop off or a decline. They wanted to get those numbers back up because, again, it's a business. So they created what they came out with a new loading technique to see, can I get this to work instead? So probably a good one for anybody out there who's running a Windows 10 shop to go take a closer look at. Absolutely. And remember, too, it is delivered via a phishing campaign. That's what the blog post calls out, that it is a, a new phishing campaign that came out there. So there's multiple levels of a potential detection and protection inside of there. They all do also detail out what the, you know, malicious DLL comes down as. Um, it's actually low, it's on on disk as a PNG file, but it is not a portable network graphic. It's in fact a DLL. So one of the easiest things you could look for would be run DLL 32, 
pulling or calling a file that is not a DLL would be a great detection place to start from. And I'd be willing to bet that there's probably already a version out there inside of the Sigma repository. That seems like a pretty pretty good way to detect something funny going on. Last one for the show today, eCentire's threat response unit led by researchers Joe Stewart and Keegan Keplinger have launched a multi-pronged offensive against a growing cyber threat, the Gootloader Initial Access as a Service Operation. The Gootloader operation is an expansive cybercrime business that has been in operation since 2018. For the past 15 months, the Gootloader operator has been launching ongoing attacks targeting legal professionals working for both law firms and corporate legal departments in the USA, Canada, the UK, and Australia. Between January and March 2023, eCentire's threat response unit shut down Gootloader attacks against 12 different organizations, seven of which were law firms. The Gootloader operation is targeting law firms and law professionals because that's where they can find the most sensitive data that most people want to be kept confidential. It's the kind of data that can damage reputations, compromise business deals, expose protected witnesses, and undermine an organization's legal case. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, aka CISA, named it a top malware strain of 2021. The Gootloader operation uses SEO poisoning to lure victims to compromised websites where they download the Gootloader thinking it's a legitimate file. Can you explain how this type of SEO attack works? Yeah, absolutely. So SEO poisoning... Uh, well, well, first off, let's start with just SEO, search engine optimization. This is where I'm using tricks, and I call them tricks. They're very widely publicly available. You can go watch YouTube videos on SEO optimization. But it is utilizing certain keywords and things that you can do to promote your page to the top of search results. And depending on the search engine or the search mechanism that you're trying to get to the top of, you can use certain keywords. Obviously, sometimes you can just pay straight up. Other times you can find ways to manipulate the algorithms, you know, certain keywords to move your pages up in search order, index rank, so on and so forth. It all just depends on what it is you're trying to achieve. It's a very common practice for legitimate businesses because they want to get noticed first. SEO poisoning, I think there's a couple different things there. The first one is manipulating those exact same techniques to bring your malicious page up to the top of those search results. The second is then having that infrastructure in place to say when someone clicks on a thing, you're there with a seemingly looking legitimate page with some sort of a downloader or drive-by or some sort of other thing thinking it is a legitimate file, but it's in fact a piece of malware being loaded. SEO poisoning is, is therefore kind of in summary that, look, I know certain people from certain industries are Googling or search engineering, whatever the platform may be, certain things. I know that they've got certain workflows that they use. I'm going to get my page moved up or featured to the top. So we're going to poison those results. And it may also be as straightforward as compromising SEO results to insert your page in there. So it might not even be a kind of slow climbing of the ranks, Chris. It might instead be, I'm going to show up at number two because I have a malicious way to get there. And then getting people to click on those particular links download some subsequent files or whatever it might be, and then boom, now you've got malware on the system. But SEO poisoning is just another way to abuse kind of that typical workflow of folks looking stuff up, Googling things, researching information, and just trying to find different pieces of data across the internet. And these guys are initial access brokers to much worse things that come after. Is this kind of cyber intervention the researchers are engaging in doing any lasting damage, or is it a small reprieve for the businesses being targeted? I think it's good knowledge for anyone who's in the security space and has the ability to help set up those types of defenses. 
I think where it would benefit industries or non-security folks best is probably in the form of some sort of cybersecurity education and things. And one thing for a lot of folks to remember, like you can read all the technical details and it's, it's a great blog post. Like eCentire put some really cool stuff in here. Really, really great technical breakdowns, graphical analyses, Python scripts, all sorts of really cool stuff. But the problem is someone may take a, a, a spear phishing training or a waterhole attack training six months from now, and it'll be one slide that says, you know, adversaries can do this, this, and that. Here's what you should look out for, A, B, C, D, and then boom. That's what this all gets distilled down into, you know, is you can have 10 of these published a week, and it's going to maybe add another slide to cybersecurity education, but it's still going to be very generalized. You're not going to see folks at these various law firms and whatnot you know, taking training on defeating Gootloader and stuff like that, right? It's going to all be condensed and distilled down. That being said, I, I do think that you will see, you know, I think you and I have talked about this before. There's only a finite ways that adversaries can do things. The list may be long, but it's still a list with an ending to it. And anything we can do to release and reveal those types of details does make it harder. I think where you'll see a lot of value in here is folks who are doing like uh, browser security, web-based security, proxy security, things like that, where they've got the ability to help add fidelity and confidence to and security to the pages that people are visiting and are browsing, as well as to like web hosting tools, SEO tools, and things like that. I think you'll see a lot of benefit there. They'll take away from this. And again, I'm always a fan of disclosing adversary techniques because it means there's one less place for them to hide or one less thing for them to do and remain undetected for a while. But CISA calling this out a top malware strain of 2021, and then really just, you know, the continued prevalence of this type of thing, plus, as you mentioned earlier, the terrible, terrible post-attack things are, are all valuable reasons to be concerned. But from a security perspective, drop in those preventions, educate your users, take a look at, you know, how software may be able to help you in this particular case. But user education is going to be one of the most important things. You got to remember... In the blog post, one of the things that they called out was getting a user to download Gootloader thinking it's a legitimate piece of software or an additional thing. That's really your last line of defense is you want to kind of get that step covered as much as you can. So working with folks and working with, you know, your uh, your users to make sure that they understand what they're clicking what they're downloading is a valuable, valuable step to prevent attacks like this from being successful. Maybe staying to trusted parts of the internet. That as well. That as well. And I will say, you know, I'll, I'll give a little bit of advice on this one too. Um, in reading through the blog post, they do talk about how Gootloader, and I'm quoting here, infects legal employees by luring them to blogs populated with content pertaining to legal agreements and contracts. When they visit the blog, they're invited to download a sample legal agreement or contract and are actually downloading Gootloader. I mean, let's just walk through that step, right? We're going to a random blog post to download legal agreements or sample contracts or things like that. Hey, you want an easy way around that one? Develop your own templates and make them readily <laughs> accessible for your employees. Yeah. You know, and then they're not Googling for them and yeah. stuff like that. And that's, it's not the answer. It doesn't solve everything. But if I can reduce 30% of attacks with that implementation, then fantastic. I'm going to do it. And it's just looking for little things like that. And maybe I'll finish today's episode with this. You and I have talked a lot about the human element of these side of things, about how you know I need to get a human to click my thing or open my email or whatever it is. Anything I can do on the defense side 
to help bolster the human element is going to be a much stronger defense than all the tools in the world can actually buy. Because I could have a human, I could send them one spear phishing email, or I could send them 10,000 spear phishing emails. If they click one, we've, you know, we, an adversary's in. But if they ignore or if they report all 10,000 because they've been educated as such, well, I've got a much better stance regardless of whatever my security tool is. So that's my advice here is user education. All right, Matt. Well, thanks for being on the show again. I think there's a lot of good stuff in this one, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about new stuff next week. I'm sure we will. And again, a huge thanks to our Intel channel. And Chris, as always, take care. I'll see you on the next one. Cheers, buddy. And that concludes episode 38 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.